Okay, we have been um, for about five or six weeks now in a series of messages called Faith Matters. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to get our, our minds around this concept of biblical faith. And we want to make sure that when we talk about being people of faith, that we mean the same thing that God means when He calls us to be people of faith. That we're not just sort of making stuff up on our own, and we're not just sort of taking the cues that we pick up from uh, other Christians around us and saying, well, that must be what faith is, or this must be what faith is. We really want to get as, as entrenched in God's Word as we can so that we understand what He says faith is. And we've been talking about this because there's a lot of teaching out there that confuses us and leads us astray, and we end up going, I, I don't know what this whole faith thing is really all about. And so what, what I'm hoping is that we can really sort of dig into the Word and that God will begin to illuminate it, not just so that we would be able to pass a quiz, that if somebody was to say, give a definition of faith, that we could give a biblical definition, but so that as we actually walk with God, we're actually walking by faith, that we're actually living out the things that God calls us <clears throat> to live out. So we've been looking at it from a bunch of different angles, and last week, we looked at the story of Jonathan that we find in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. And, and for those of you who weren't here, even if you were, let me just recap really quickly. What, what was basically happening at that time was that uh, there was this little sort of uh, garrison of um, Hebrew soldiers, and they were, they were surrounded, if you will, by Philistines who were better prepared, better, prote- better trained, who had more... Um, people who had better weapons. And so basically, the army of God was just hiding in holes in the ground and caves and under rocks and behind cliffs and all this kind of stuff, just trying to take coverage because they were afraid of what the Philistines could do. And in the midst of this, we find Jonathan, who is the son of the king, and Jonathan has a personal armor bearer. And we see the two of them together. And Jonathan looks out and he says, basically, I am so sick of just hiding from God's enemies. I want to do something about this. And the armor bearer says, really, is God leading you to do something? Yeah, here's what I have in mind. Here's what I think. I think we should get up from our hiding place. I think we should walk out into the open and we should move toward where the Philistine army is. And I think we should just like wave our arms until they see us. And, and we try to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the armor bearer thinking, you know, Jonathan, if you want to go on a suicide mission, that's really your business, but do I really have to go with you? I mean, are you sure that this is what God wants us to do? And we pointed out that in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan uses the word perhaps. So, so he's not sure. He says, you know what, let's go and do this. Perhaps God will give them into our hands. And I'm thinking, if I'm the armor bearer, I'm going, perhaps? Like, seriously, we're going to walk out into this on a, on a perhaps. Like, has the, has, the, has the Lord appeared to you? Did an angel come and stand before you like with Joshua and say, hey, it's time to cross? Or when the time when the angel said to Joshua, hey, march around the city of Jericho. I mean, that was crazy. But if an angel told you, then we're going to do it. And he goes, well, perhaps. You know, perhaps God's going to do something great. Let's go out and do this. And so he follows them out, and they go out there, and they sort of wave their arms, and they go, hey, look at us. And he has this plan. He says, if when they see us, they say, hey, wait there, we're coming to you, we're taking off. But if they say, come up to us, we're going because God's going to give them into our hands. And I would imagine the armor bearer is going, 
really? Like, where'd you get that? <laughs> you, you, you're just assuming this? And he goes, well, I, you know, it's like a gut thing. I just, I feel strongly in my spirit that we're supposed to do this. Perhaps God will do something amazing. And so they actually go out and do this. And if you, if you, you know, went home this week and read the rest of the story, what you'll find is that it wasn't one of those amazing Bible stories that they went up to this group. There's like these 20 men on one acre of land, and they go up to these 20 men, and they, they wipe them out, just one guy with a sword and his armor bearer. And they wipe out 20 men on an acre of land, and that sort of prompts the battle. And basically, the Philistines come out of their tents and out of their um, embankments, and they come out, and they say, the fight is on, and they begin just swinging their swords, and they turn on one another, and they swing their swords on one another. And then we find out that there were some Hebrew soldiers who had already defected and gone in among them, and those Hebrew soldiers decide, hey, it looks like God's side is winning again, and they go back to God's side, and they start attacking the Philistines, and pretty soon the Philistines are just like, just that whole garrison of Philistines is wiped out, and God has done this amazing thing, and we have yet another wonderful Sunday school story about how if you'll just trust God, and if you'll just believe, and if you'll just walk by faith, God will do something amazing. And the thing that I wanted you to get out of that is not look what God can do, because we have that again and again and again. What I wanted us to get out of that is look how Jonathan handled it when he felt strongly about what God wanted to do. He didn't stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, everybody come with me, this is what God's going to do. He goes, yeah, perhaps. And he just was honest in dealing with it, and he went step by step waiting for God to open doors and show him more. Well, today, I want to show you two other stories from Scripture that are similar. In fact, they're right there in the same spot. If, you, if you're not there already, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel and go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. The story we saw last week was in chapter 14. It's a story of Jonathan. This week, we're going to go back to chapter 13. We're going to look at a story involving Jonathan's father, Saul. And then we're going to skip over chapter 14, where we were last week. And we're going to go to chapter 15. And we're going to look at another story involving Saul. And we're going to see those two stories sandwiched around the story of Jonathan. And then we're going to see what we can learn from all of this. So um, how many of you know that sometimes... Our wisest ideas are really stupid. Is that not true? Or is that just me? You found that to be true? Sometimes our wisest ideas are really stupid. In fact, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man. That you could take your own intellect and your own wisdom and all that you bring to the table and go, you know what, this is what I think is right, and you could be marching right into death because the way that seems right to a man is often not the right way. There's another verse, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts." So if we're going to be serious about this idea of following God and walking by faith, then we're going to have to at least admit the truth. Most of the time, we don't know what's on God's mind. Most of the time, we don't understand what He's up to. Most of the time, what looks reasonable to us is not at all reasonable because of what God is doing. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And a lot of times, the way that seems right to me is actually a way that leads to death. 
So let me introduce you to a man who would have really benefited from paying attention to that teaching. His name is Saul. He's Jonathan's father, as I told you. He was the king of Israel, the first ever king of Israel. And um, let's pick up his story in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 5. 1 Samuel 13, 5. Again, they're battling with the Philistines, and this is a much, much bigger kind of a battle that we see here in chapter 13 than the one, the little skirmish we saw in chapter 14. Chapter 13, verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of beth Now, if this was today, today's day and age of, of warfare, that 30,000 chariots would be like 30,000 nuclear missiles. That, and and the, the um, horsemen would be like uh, tanks or airplanes or uh, battleships. Like, to have that kind of military strength and to be surrounding this little group of guys who are out there with pitchforks and hammers and, and uh, sickles trying to, trying to fight this battle, it's just a hopeless mess. So verse 6 shows how they responded. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So they were following him, but not because they were confident, not because they were expecting victory. They were following him because he was the king, and if they don't do what he says, they'll be put to death. But they were trembling. So they're following him trembling. Verse 8, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. Who is Samuel? He's the prophet. Okay, He's the one who speaks directly for God in this time. He is the one who has already met with Saul, we find out later, and given him direct instructions from God about this battle, how to fight it, what it's going to involve, and what he needs to do. And basically Samuel said, I will be there in seven days. And when I arrive, we're going to start with worship. So I'm going to offer an offering to the Lord, and then we're going to mount our attack, okay? Verse 8, he had waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So there was a plan. The prophet had told him exactly what God intended to do. He was to wait until Samuel got there, but Samuel wasn't showing up. And to make matters worse, every time he looked around, he saw more of his soldiers deserting. And why wouldn't they? It was a hopeless situation. And so little by little, the people are all leaving, and Saul is beginning to get nervous. And so verse 9, Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So he offered the burnt offering, which you got you to gotta pat him on the back and commend him because... You know, in a, in a warfare situation, sometimes things don't go according to plan, and you have to make a decision about how you're going to handle that and what you're going to do. And at least he saw fit to actually offer the burnt offering, right? He, he remembered that Samuel said, we have to make worship the priority. And so he went ahead and offered the burnt offering. And you say, good for you, Saul. You're a man of faith, except for one thing. He wasn't a priest, and he wasn't a prophet. So he was actually forbidden 
from making this kind of an offering. It had to be made by Samuel. It couldn't be made by anybody else. And so he basically says, I know what God said. I know God said he was going to do this, but I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking the people are leaving by the hour. We've got to get started. Who knows? Maybe Samuel got attacked on the road. Maybe he's dead. We don't even know if he's coming. And so he offers the offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> as soon as you lose, <coughs> as soon as you give up hope, as soon as you decide to do things your own way, and God goes, oh, if you would have just waited. And so uh, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Listen, Saul gets in all kinds of trouble for this. In fact, he says, God's rejected you for being king. In other words, your days are numbered, Saul. In fact, I've already chosen somebody. Who was that somebody? David. He chose David to become the next king, and he had already been anointed to be the next king, right? And so he's already found this uh, replacement for Saul, who's just really getting his, his kingship started. His reign is just beginning. And he says, I rejected you from this. And when we stop and look at this and go, you know what? Honestly, from time to time, I feel like God's just a little too harsh. And I wish God would just check with me on these things before he makes these decisions. I can give him some counsel and maybe it would help him. Anyway, so we think, why is he being so harsh? Why is he taking away his kingdom? After all, he just made a military decision. He said, listen, this is what needs to happen. I can't wait any longer, and he did it. Here's the problem. God had given him specific instructions, and he was now disobeying those specific instructions. His decision made sense. It was reasonable. But the key phrase is in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Listen, in those days, when a prophet spoke for God, it was absolutely the same as the Bible is to us today. When a prophet spoke for God, it was a command from God, it was the word of God, you were not to disobey it. And what is he doing when he goes, well, gosh, things may have changed, maybe I should do something different than what God commanded. He's assuming that God didn't know that God didn't already have this under control. And so he's moving away from faith. You see, a few weeks ago I said that doubt, the opposite of doubt, the opposite, excuse me, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is what? Disobedience. To say, to say I, I'm not so sure what's going on. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I, if I know what's going to happen here. That's, there's nothing unfaithful about that. But to know what God has said, and to say, no, God, I'm going to do it my own way, that's faithlessness. So Saul was unfaithful, even though he was reasonable. And by the way, look at how Saul explains his disobedience. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering. So it's not my fault, it's the people's fault. They were scattering. Because I saw that the people were scattering and that you did not come within the appointed time, so it's Samuel's fault, not Saul's fault, Samuel's fault. You didn't come within the appointed time. And the Philistines were assembling, so the Philistines, it's their fault. Now, therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. I was just trying to be spiritual, just trying to ask God's favor. And so I forced myself. I didn't want to do it, but I just forced myself because I had no choice. See all the blame shifting that's going on here? There's no, there's no taking of responsibility saying, Lord, you told me exactly what to do and I did something else. And this is what many of us have, as parents have experienced and many of us experienced as children in dealing with our own parents is that you get caught red-handed and then you go, well, yeah, but let me tell you, yeah, but. I wish I had a dollar for every yeah, but I heard as a parent, right? And we love to say, yeah, but it's, you don't understand. Yeah, but you, I was just, I, I, and, and God says, listen, I was very clear and you disobeyed simple. Okay, so we have that story. And then, of course, we have Jonathan's story, the crazy battle where, the, where um, God blesses it and they all take out the Philistines. But before we move on, let's go to chapter 15 and look at the other side of the sandwich and see this story about Saul that begins in chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. That seems like just an introductory verse, but it's not. It's very important. Samuel is saying something to him. He's saying, don't forget who I am. I'm the prophet. I'm the one sent by God. I'm the one who made you king. If you don't believe that that my words represent God's words, then you shouldn't even be the king. I'm the one who made you the king. I'm the one who comes with the word of God, and with the word of God, I told you what to do. And so here I am to tell you what to do again. Listen to the words of the Lord, just so there's no confusion. These are the words of the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Amalek is a neighboring nation. For what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him while he was on his way coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now before we continue with the story, let me just go on record as saying I don't like it either. I don't like the fact that God says, listen, I want you to go into this place and I want you to kill every living being. Animals, children, women, soldiers, senior citizens, wipe them all out. And once again, I say, Lord, if you had just consulted with me, I would have let you know this is going to hurt your reputation down the line, and people are not going to like this about you. And they're going to say, who the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful God. And you know what? The Scripture tells us our God is a wrathful God. And I don't like the fact that this happens this way, and it makes me uneasy and it makes me uncomfortable, but I'll tell you what I'm comfortable with. I'm comfortable with knowing that God is God and I'm not, amen? Amen. And, and, And he had said... 
to this nation that he was going to destroy them because of what they did against his people Israel. And so God, as a protective father of Israel, says, I am going to make good on the promise that I made to wipe out these people, and I'm going to use you, Saul, and your army to go in and wipe these people out. Now, you may not like the directions that God gave, but they're clear, are they not? There is to be nothing and no one living when you leave. Verse 4, then Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Tel Aim, 200,000 foot soldiers. This is a big army. 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go down, uh, uh, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. It was not God's plan to wipe out the Kenites. So Saul let them know. So they separated themselves out and before the ambush began. Verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Did Saul obey God? No, right? Obviously. Again, I don't know why God did it the way he did it, but he was clear with his direction. And Saul went in and leading these people, and basically what they did is instead of wiping out everybody, they kept the king alive. This was an absolutely common practice. You would keep the king alive, and then you would have a victory parade when you got back to your nation, and you would bring the king with a rope around his neck, and you would lead him like a dog through the streets, and the people would throw things at him and mock him, and he would become like a trophy for you. And so he kept the king alive, and tons of animals. Now, he didn't keep alive the frogs, and he didn't keep alive the house cats, and he didn't keep alive the mice and all that kind of stuff. Here's what he kept alive. Sheep, donkeys, camels, useful animals, animals that they could use that, that make them more wealthy. They basically took the spoils, which would be normal. It would be what you would do if it wasn't for the fact that God told them not to. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and he has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and it was told Saul, Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, Oh, they have brought them from the Amalekites. There he is again, they. They brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It was for spiritual reasons. We were going to make a great sacrifice, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true 
Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? For behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Dude, your time is up. No more, no more freebies. It's over. We're going to start the process. Here's the bottom line. When it comes to following God, we need more than our best guess. We saw Jonathan have this strong feeling in his gut, and he went, you know, perhaps, and he started to take some steps and see what God would do. We saw Saul use real wisdom and, and reason and intellect and say, you know, the right way to go about this is like this, so I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. And we saw that God didn't even bless that. And we see again that Saul makes his own choice and knows that he's, that he's disobeying God, but after all, he's the king and he gets to do things his own way. And God doesn't bless that. How do we know? See, it's such a great thing when he asks Samuel, the prophet, wouldn't it be great if we had like dial a prophet and you weren't sure what to do about something? It's just called like 1-800-IC. You call this guy up and go, hey, listen, I got this job offer and it's in Minnesota. Should I go to Minnesota? And he goes, yeah, you should go. That'd be great. Or he goes, um, hey, um, have you seen the weather report in Minnesota? And you go, oh, yeah, maybe I'm going to stay here in sunny California, right? Wouldn't that be great? When you can't look it up in Scripture, where you just go, oh, just call the prophet. But you know what? We don't have that opportunity. What we have is this book. And this book is pretty profound, isn't it? I mean, it really tells us what we need to know about life. We have this book, and then we have the Holy Spirit if we're, if we're Christians. And the Holy Spirit lives within us, and He guides us, and He directs us. And that's more a lot of that gut feeling stuff comes from. And then we go, what do we do? We have this gut feeling. We can't look it up in Scripture it doesn't say move to Minnesota or stay in California. When it comes to following God, we need more than just our best guess. So let me give you some practical biblical principles that will help you when you have questions about what to do and where to go and you want to stay walking by faith, okay? I'm going to give you six specific things. The first one, a question that you can ask yourself before you take that blind leap Ask yourself this, am I already obeying what God's Word has clearly communicated? Guys, over and over and over again, you're going to hear me say this. We have to start here. The Word of God 
actually teaches us how to handle life. It tells us how to treat people that we like and how to treat people that we don't like. I don't really like that part either. It tells us what we're to do with our finances. It tells us how we're to live in our relationships. It tells us how we are to function as citizens of a country. It tells us how to raise our children. It tells us how to get along with our spouse. It tells us how to handle our sex life. It tells us how to handle our financial life. It tells us how to make business decisions. It tells us almost anything you can think of, it's covered in here. There are principles in God's Word that are so clear that all we have to do is look at those principles and it doesn't take much wisdom to go, here's how I apply this principle in my life. There's so much in this. We call it the Word of God. And the reason we call it the Word of God is because it is the Word of God. And I can only imagine how often we sit here and go, oh, I just wish God would tell me what to do. I just wish God would speak to me. And I just picture God sitting up in heaven with a Bible in his hand going, I just wish they'd listen to me. I just wish they'd listen to me. I suppose he says, oy vey. I wish they'd listen to me. And we're going, oh God, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And God is saying, listen, what was the last thing I showed you in the word? How are you doing with that? Because guys, it is the height of arrogance to think that when I am not obeying the things that God has clearly communicated to me, that he's going to come along and whisper in my ear something special just for me and him. Really? Is that what we expect of God? We need to begin at the beginning. Guys, we have to be in the Word. We need to understand what it teaches. So many of our questions are answered right there. Second thing you can ask yourself, is my spouse or are my parents on the same page with me on this? Now, some of you are really uncomfortable with that statement. Some of you are already going, oh, you don't know my spouse. You don't know my parents. Well, okay, here's what I do know. I know that the Word of God says that when a man and wife come together to be a husband and wife, two become one, and therefore one cannot go in two directions that are opposite of each other at the same time. And so if you think you're doing something that you ought to be doing. I'm not talking about something that is clearly clarified in Scripture. I'm talking about something you have a hunch about. I think we ought to take that job and move to Minnesota. And your spouse is going, oh, I really don't feel good about this. Oh, I really don't feel right about this. Here's what I'm telling you. Do not do it. Spend time with your spouse. Get together. Pray. Talk. Get past the bickering and the arguing and the he said, see, you know what I do He said, she said, get past all that stuff and go, we are one and there's only one Holy Spirit and he's going to guide us and direct us. It's an amazing thing. People ask me about this all the time. As a church, all the decisions for the church are made by a group of elders, right? The elders have all the authority to make decisions in our church and, and this group of elders only makes decisions unanimously. We never do a democratic vote kind of thing. We never do a majority kind of thing. No decision ever gets made that isn't made unanimously. Now, I've only been an elder in this church for 25 years, but I can tell you in those 25 years, there has never been one single time when we haven't been able to be unanimous about something. Never once. Sometimes it's taken a while. Sometimes we had to pray and fast. Sometimes we had to seek counsel. 
Sometimes we have to listen and learn, but eventually we go on the principle that there is one Holy Spirit, and when we're looking for the Holy Spirit's direction, He is not going to tell one person one thing and another person the other thing, and if we will get together and be one, He will lead us, and He will do the same in your marriage. If you're a married person and your spouse is not on board, don't go jumping off any cliffs and saying it was Jesus who sent you. And the same goes for young people when we're talking about your parents. Say, well, you know, my parents don't understand. I'm on fire for Jesus. I just want to go and do this. That's fine. You're 14, you're 15, you're 16. God bless you. I am so excited about your idealism. I'm so excited about your your motivation, how you want to serve God with all your life. But here's what I know for sure. God gave you parents, and then he gave you a command to obey your parents. So don't give me this. I'm going to run off and do my own thing, and my parents, they just don't understand. That's not how God works. And you're going to be disobeying God. Third thing, ask yourself, what do wise counselors advise? Because Proverbs 15.22 says, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. And by the way, I just picked one of probably a hundred verses in Proverbs that say essentially the same thing. Get counsel. Get counsel. Get counsel. Seek wise counsel. And when you get that counsel, listen to it. And by the way, the definition of a wise counselor is not someone who agrees with you. Okay? Because don't we all know that if you just ask the right person, you can get someone to support pretty much whatever you want to do? You just go, get, you just pick your counselors carefully. But I'm talking about choosing wise counselors. Here's what I mean. And by the way, if you're a young person especially, but for all of us, but especially if you're a young person, a a wise counselor is almost never a peer, okay? So so I I found this in youth ministry. I'm not picking on teenagers. Uh, If you know me at all, you know that, that probably teenagers are my favorite part of the body of Christ. But if you're 15 years old, and I was 15 once, it was a couple hundred years ago, but I was 15. If you're 15 years old or in that age bracket, and, you, and you're really struggling with something, and you have a decision to make, and you really need some counsel, who do 15-year-olds go to for counsel? They go to other 15-year-olds who are just as inexperienced as they are, right? And you're getting counsel from your friend who is no wiser than you, okay? But you say, yeah, but if I went to, like, I don't know, somebody old like my parents, they would tell me not to do what I want to do. Oh, Really? So do you want counsel or not? And, and we do the same thing as adults. We choose our counselors. There's always that girlfriend that if I call her up, I could cry on her shoulder and she'll tell me what I want to hear. There's always that guy at work that if I sit down with him and we meet over lunch and I talk about it and give him my side of the story, he'll, do what, he'll suggest what I want him to suggest. We can get counsel any way that we want. But listen, if you don't seek out someone who knows the Word of God, and someone who has a track record of wisely applying it in their own lives, that you are not seeking wise counsel. And when you seek wise counsel, take it. Because there are at least two kinds of fools. There's the fool who never seeks counsel and just follows his gut. And then there's the fool who seeks counsel, gets wise counsel, and ignores it and follows his gut. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. And you know what? If you decide to be a fool, don't drag God's name through the mud with you and say, God said I should do this. 
Be very careful, by the way, with the God talk. Be very, very careful with, I have a word from the Lord, or the Lord showed me this, or the Lord told me that, or the Lord called me to do this. Listen, if he has said it in his word, you can believe him, okay? You must obey him. You should follow him. But if it's your own sense or feeling acting on its own, and, and you think that that's exhibiting faith, that's not exhibiting faith. You're putting faith in yourself and your own ability to try to discern what God's will is rather than putting your faith in God and obeying what He has said His will is. So if you want to throw around the God talk and in essence say, thus saith the Lord, I know this is God's will. I know this is gonna, God's going to come through for me in this. I know God wants me to tell you this. If that's what you want to do, then you better be willing to live with the responsibilities of a prophet. And that is, if you're wrong once, they kill you. Okay? So let's be careful with the God talk. Because when we use it, not always, but sometimes, we're really just trying to manipulate people and we're trying to use God as our um, support system to do that. And oftentimes it's more about my ego than it is about anything else. So be careful with the God talk. Number four, ask yourself, how does this fit in with what I already know about what God is doing? How does this fit in with what I already know about what God is doing? Remember the story of David and Goliath? Of course you do. So David goes out, he takes some stones and he kills a giant, right? Great story. Isn't it wonderful? He's a man of faith. What was the basis for his making the decision to step out and do that? First of all, he tells us in the story, he says, listen, I have experience with this. I am incredibly talented with this sling. I have killed lions and I have killed bears. I have experience fighting with this thing and I have fought and defeated much bigger, much stronger enemies time and again. Number two, God had already anointed him to be the next king of Israel. God had said, this is your future. So he was not going to die in the battlefield that day. He could, he could put it all together and go, God is opening up an opportunity for me here. I'm going to take this opportunity. And, and so many times we just hear about something and we want to just rush off into it because it seems like a great adventure. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do this. And we have no basis for it. Like, like somebody says, I'm going to, you know, I, I just have, I hate my job. I always wanted to, to be a Christian musician. I always wanted to just be a singer that glorifies God and, and all that kind of stuff. And I hate my job. And my boss has gotten my nerves for the last time. Today was the straw that broke the camel's back. So today I had an epiphany and I decided it's time to get out of the boat and it is time to trust God with my life and it is time to quit this job and instead I'm going to go into the music business and I'm going to be a professional singer. And what I would ask you before you do that amazing step of faith is have you ever heard yourself sing? Not everybody has reason to believe that God's plan is for them to be a professional singer, right? You got to ask yourself, does this make sense with what God has already shown me about his plan for my life? Fifth, can I live with the worst case scenario? I, you know, it's really romantic 
to get all bold and say, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to live a risky life for Jesus. And if you hear me preach, you know that I'm constantly calling us to do that, to get out of our comfort zone and get out there and live for Jesus on the front lines. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But it's a really romantic idea. But you got to stop and ask yourself, based on the responsibilities God has given me and what He has called me to and what He's already expressed to me about His plan for my life, can I live with the worst case scenario here? Jonathan said, hey, perhaps God is doing this. Here's my plan. Let's go out to about the halfway point and get their attention. And if they say, wait for us, we're not waiting. If they say, wait for us, we're taking off and and turning tail because God is not giving them into our hands. But if they say, come up to me, then we're going to come up. Guys, what's the worst case scenario in that situation? Either we have to run and get out of breath while we're getting away from them, or if we misread God and we go ahead, two of us are going to die. It's not like the whole nation of Israel is going to be wiped out. But I have seen people who are the head of their household say, I'm going to take this step of faith when they made up the calling that they had from God. And their whole family suffers for it. You know, the whole body of Christ suffers. Every time some preacher gets out there and makes a name and claim it proclamation and says, this is going to happen. Remember when Oral Roberts said, if not enough money comes in to build this big hospital, then God's going to kill me? I said, hey, man. <laughs> Guys, we got to be careful. The God talk is so easy to be manipulative with. Can I live with the worst case scenario? And the last thing, ask yourself, do I have an exit strategy? Because you know what? It's okay to do the very best you can to understand what God wants you to do and begin taking steps in that direction. And when God makes it clear that you're going the wrong way, to stop and turn around. It's okay. In fact, the Word of God says, man makes his plans, but what? God directs his steps. So go ahead and make plans. Do the very best you can to understand what God wants you to do so you're going to walk by faith. You're going to step out and you're going to look and go, okay, Lord, was that the right step? Is this next step the right step? Don't take your eyes off God. And when God says, hey, 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 you're missing it. You got this wrong. Wise people begin to come to you and say, hey, I'm concerned about this in your life. Or you try some things and doors just keep closing. You know what? It is okay to go, you know what? I think I missed that. I think I'm going to go back to the crossroads where I was and I'm going to start back again. I hope you guys will grant me that kind of freedom as the leader of this church. That we can say, hey, listen, we have this great idea. We're going to start this new ministry idea and we're going to pursue it and then find out, you know what? We're wrong. I thought it was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and it ain't. Listen, I wish I had 10 bucks for every great idea I had for ministry. And I started implementing only to find out, you know what, I really misunderstood. It's not, it's not what God wants. And if you're not willing at that point to step back, then now it's your pride that is guiding you instead of the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God to guide us. Don't ever be afraid to live according to God's teaching, to the teaching of His Word the things that are absolutely clear. You go out there and you take every risk because when you're in God's hands, there is no risk. Could bad things happen to you? Yes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did get thrown into the fiery furnace. Bad things can happen. And yet, our God is a faithful God. What was their worst case scenario? They end up in heaven with God who says, well done, good and faithful servant. That was it. But they weren't going to bow down to an idol. 
So trust God and follow his word. But please, church, please stop putting words in his mouth. Let's not say, this is what God has said. This is what God has called me to do when we don't know it for sure. If you're not sure, follow Jonathan's example and go perhapsing. It's a great adventure to go perhapsing with God. He will never leave you bored. But here's the thing, guys. Your future's on the line with these decisions. And more importantly, so is God's reputation. So for God's sake, walk by faith. But make sure your faith is grounded in the Word of God. Make sure your faith is biblical. And let the world watch. And let the, let the world see what God will do to show Himself strong through a person who is fully surrendered to walking by faith no matter the cost. When we do that, the world will stand up and take notice of what a great and awesome God we serve. I am so excited, not just about the, the home for reigning hope and how those kids are now going to have these opportunities. I am excited about God's fame that is going to spread from this because people are going to go, wow, we really do serve a God who cares for even the least of these. Don't miss that opportunity. Walk by faith.